Chapter fourteen of Just as I Am. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Just as I Am by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter fourteen The Yellow Ribbon. Tears were streaming down Jane Barnard's cheeks as she shut the door of Morton Blake's study and turned to leave the house in which she had found so little comfort. Just at that moment Dora Blake came out of a room on the opposite side of the hall, and seeing the stranger's tearful face, went over to her and laid a gentle hand upon her shoulder. "'You are in trouble,' she said softly. "'Can I do anything to help you?' The sweet, low voice, the grave, dark eyes so full of pity, melted Jane Barnard's heart. "'Oh, madam,' she said, "'I am sure you are good and kind.' If you're the Miss Blake I knew when I was a little girl, I know you're full of pity for poor folks. Yes, I am in great trouble, and I came to this house to find help, but I have found none. Come to my room, said Aunt Dora, opening a door at the back of the hall, and taking the stranger into her snug retreat, where she gave her a chair by the fire, and took the opposite chair for herself. You say I knew you when you were a child? "'You're a native of this parish, then, I conclude?' "'Yes, madam. I was born close by, and we lived on your brother's estate when I was a child. You used to come in to see my poor mother sometimes, and sit beside our fire, and chat with her just as if you were friends and equals. Not like some of the district ladies that go into poor folks' cottages at mealtime, and grumble at what they see on the table.' and sit down and read the Bible to a working man at his dinner without asking by your leave or with your leave. I've heard mother say your visits were like sunshine, Miss Blake. What was your mother's name? Vargas. The name of the man who murdered my brother? The man who is in jail and who is to die for that crime if nobody interferes to save him. But not the man who did it. No, dear lady. If I did not know and feel, as surely as I know and feel that there is a sun in the sky, that my father is innocent of that cruel murder, I would never have crossed this threshold today. I would not dare to look you in the face. I would crawl out of your presence like a beaten dog. But how can we believe a man innocent of a crime which he has confessed, which the strongest evidence has brought home to him? Jane Barnard pleaded her father's cause with Miss Blake as she had pleaded with Morton, and Aunt Dora listened with grave attention to every word the woman said. She was asked to believe a thing which seemed on the face of it incredible. She was asked to reopen a question which she thought at rest for ever. It had been an infinite relief to her to see the mystery of her brother's death finally solved, as she thought, although her tender heart pitied the forlorn wretch who was to suffer for the crime. "'How can I help you?' she asked at last. "'Oh, you can help me in two ways, dear Miss Blake. First, by signing the memorial which Sir Nathaniel Ritherden and Sir Everard Courtney have put in hand.' "'Sir Everard Courtney?' exclaimed Dora Blake. "'What, he is trying to save your father?' "'He has signed the memorial. If you will sign it, and induce your friends to sign it, the sentence may be commuted, my father's life may be spared. You can help me still further, and still better, by aiding me with your memory of years gone by to the discovery of the real murderer. 
Miss Blake started. "'You are mad to think of such a thing,' she said. "'If your father is not the murderer, who is to find the real criminal? Who is to unravel a mystery which baffled the police when the crime was newly done, and evidence could more easily be had?' A resolute mind and an earnest purpose may do much, Miss Blake. I want to clear my father's name for the sake of my husband and my children. James Barnard was better placed in the world than I was when he married me. He was the son of respectable parents, well educated, in business for himself, and I was only a domestic servant. He stooped low enough when he chose me for his wife, but I don't want him to be told that he married a woman whose father was hanged for murder. I have come across the sea to save my father's life and to clear his name, if it is to be done by a woman's work, and I think I'd rather die than go back to Boston without having done it. I will sign the memorial and induce others to sign it if I can, said Miss Blake, after a silence of some moments. So far I am willing to help you, for it would be no comfort to me in my lifelong regret for my dear brother to know that the man who killed him had died a shameful death. As for helping you to any discovery that could prove your father's innocence of the murder, there I can do nothing. Oh, are you sure of that, Miss Blake? Yet you must know many circumstances connected with your brother's death which are dark to me. If my father's story is true, and I firmly believe it, the man who killed Mr. Blake had but one motive, and that was to take his life. Surely you must know if your brother had an enemy vindictive enough to make such a crime possible? He had no such enemy, said Dora Blake quickly, and then her eye grew troubled, and she glanced involuntarily towards the escritoire from which she had taken the packet of old letters on the night of Vargas's confession. He had no enemies, she repeated. He was the kindest and most generous of men. He was not faultless. We are none of us free from the taint of sin, and we all need pardon. But he was kind and frank and open-handed. Miss Blake, you are a good woman, but I know you are keeping something from me, said Mrs. Barnard, with an outspoken bluntness which savoured of her adopted country. You have no right to say such a thing, faltered Dora. Have I not a right to say what I mean? We always do in America. I don't want to offend you, Miss Blake, for I have a grateful remembrance of your goodness to my poor mother, even though your brother's harshness was the cause of her death. My brother acted as any other landowner would have done under the circumstances. He turned your father off his estate for an offence that had been repeated so often that even his indulgent temper was provoked to punish it. He could have no foreknowledge of the fatal effect upon your mother's health that was to follow her leaving the cottage. If she had come to me in her trouble, I might have been able to help her. But you won't help me in my trouble by speaking your mind freely, said Mrs. Barnard, with her shrewd grey eyes fixed on Dora Blake's pained face. I have said all that can be said. I will do all that can be done about the memorial. You must be content with the only aid I can give you. So be it, Miss Blake. I'm grateful for your kindness, even though you might have done more. 
answered jane barnard rising and taking a card from the little leather bag that hung on her arm this is my husband's business card and my address in england is on the back i have taken a lodging at highclere just one bedroom on a second floor over a tobacconist's shop for i want to save all my money for the work i have to do if you should have anything to tell me please write to me at that address i will be sure to do so believe me i am deeply sorry for you i am sure of that miss blake good day mrs barnard curtsied and left the room as aunt dora rang the bell for the servant to see her out when she was gone dora blake sat by the fire for some time lost in thought then she took her knitting out of a hanging pocket by the fireplace a dainty thing of satin and point lace made by elizabeth's deft fingers and began to knit the needles flashed swiftly for a little while and then aunt dora threw the work aside with an impatient sigh if this man should be innocent she said to herself and there should be any meaning in my old fear oh, god forbid god forbid the thought has haunted me through all these years and now just when i believed it was laid at rest for ever this woman's persistence calls up the old phantom revives the old doubt she unlocked the escritoire opened the secret drawer and took out the packet of letters tied with yellow ribbon again she sat with the letters loose in her lap looking them over as she had done that october night she looked at the date of each letter till she came to the particular one she wanted and then unfolded the paper with tremulous hands and read lines that were already familiar it was the shortest of all the letters written in a hand that indicated haste and agitation in the writer the date was october the nineteenth no year no address he knows everything your letter of last night fell into his hands i will tell you how when we meet though that matters very little oh walter his anger was too terrible for words to describe he was not loud or violent but his passion withered and blighted me he knows now what he has long suspected that i never loved him that i loved you first last always and shall love you to my dying day he laughed me to scorn when i told him that we were not the guilty creatures he might think us you are guilty of having lied to me from first to last he said false wife false friend would the measure of your guilt be fuller if you were oh, and then came words i cannot write and i think i must have fainted for i remember nothing more till i found lucy hanging over me with smelling salts and hartshorn and the rain and wind blowing in across my face from the open window you had better hunt to-morrow as you intended perhaps he will write to you perhaps he may try to see you oh my dearest be patient be forbearing for my sake tell him that our only sin against him is that we loved each other before ever i saw his face and have gone on loving each other ever since even in the midst of his anger when his words were most cruel i was sorry for him oh walter can there be a greater crime than such a marriage as mine what folly what weakness what wickedness is worse than that of a woman who lets herself be sold into loveless bondage yet my father and mother think themselves good and virtuous and that they have done their duty to me 
My broken heart cries out against such duty to-day. I dare not write more. My only chance of getting this letter conveyed to you is to send it by Lucy this instant. She is very good to me, and I think she is true. Yours in life and death. There was no signature. Dora Blake was still sitting with this letter in her hand, her eyes filling with tears as she read, when she started at the sound of a gay, light-hearted voice in the hall, a girlish voice talking bright, girlish talk. She replaced the letters in the escritoire with hurried, nervous hands, not stopping to tie the ribbon round them or to put them back in the secret drawer, but throwing them in anyhow and hastily locking the escritoire. She had but just turned the key when the door of her room was thrown open and her niece Clementine came in, followed by Dulcie in her fur jacket and hat. "'Dear Aunt Dora, I thought I was never going to see you again,' said Dulcie, kissing Miss Blake on both cheeks. "'So I ordered the pony carriage an hour after breakfast and came over to ask what had become of you all.' "'We've been so agitated and so anxious,' faltered Dora Blake, "'about this dreadful trial.' "'Oh, yes, naturally, poor darlings. But now that it's all over and that the miserable wretch is going to be hanged, though I can't help hoping he won't be. Surely we're all going to be happy again? I hope so, Dulcie. As to Morton, I've hardly known him since this terrible business began. I don't think he has given me a thought. If I had been his wife, he could scarcely have shown me less attention. And it isn't fair that he should anticipate the indifference of matrimony, is it, Auntie? Dulcie had adopted Miss Blake as an aunt at the very beginning of her engagement, and made a strong point of her claims as a niece. "'No, my pet, it is not fair,' answered Dora, smiling at the bright face and pouting lips, yet with a pained feeling at her heart all the time, and grave doubts as to whether happiness were as near and as certain as Dulcie fancied. "'Morton has made himself intensely disagreeable for the last six weeks,' "'And now the trial is over, he doesn't seem much better,' protested Tiny. "'He was hideously grumpy all breakfast time. "'He hasn't a word to throw at a dog.' "'Oh, what a pretty ribbon!' cried Dulcie, suddenly descrying something on the floor. "'What a funny old-fashioned colour!' It was a yellow ribbon that had been tied round the packet of letters, which Miss Blake had dropped in her confusion just now. Dulcie was on her knees upon the Persian rug, with the ribbon in her hand. "'Where did it come from?' she asked. "'It looks half a century old. It reminds me of Miss Austen's novels, and the days when Bath was the centre of fashion, and when girls danced at the assembly rooms in white muslin frocks and coral necklaces.' "'Oh, it's an old ribbon that I found years ago,' answered Miss Blake. "'I used it to tie up some papers.' "'Such a ribbon ought never to have tied up anything less romantic than love-letters, Auntie,' said Dulcie, twisting the yellow satin round her fingers and admiring its smooth texture. "'People don't manufacture such satin as this nowadays. They're not honest enough. Dear old relic of a departed age, when girls played the harpsichord and danced country dances. I hope you did not use it to tie up butcher's bills.' You're so terribly businesslike sometimes. Oh, tell us about the dinner at Mother Aspinall's, asked Tiny, who was appallingly disrespectful to her pastors and masters, 
and all people to whom she was called upon to do homage. Was it good fun? Tiny, how can you speak of her like that? remonstrated Aunt Dora. Oh, you don't approve of my calling her mother? But why not? Surely it's a venerable title, generally considered almost a sacred name. <laughs> if she were the superior of a convent, she would be called Reverend Mother. Oh, do tell us about the dinner. She's always asking Morton, and hardly ever asks us, which I call insulting. But no doubt she considers three women, out of one family, too great a trial. So she fobs us off with her annual garden party, and allows us to struggle in a crowd of nobodies for cold tea and warm ices. Was it fun, Dulcie? It was rather nice, answered Dulcie, dimpling with sudden smiles. Morton was there, you know, and Lord Beville, and I am afraid he was rather more attentive to me than Morton quite liked. He would talk, don't you know, and he didn't seem to understand that Morton and I had any right to shut him out of our conversation. As for Mrs. Aspinall, she was intensely kind, so very effusive to me that she really put the oddest ideas into my mind. Well, what do you call odd ideas? I couldn't help thinking that she was rather anxious to fascinate papa, and that she would not at all object to be my stepmother. Tiny burst into a ringing laugh. Not object, indeed! Why, she would give her eyes, or at any rate her eyebrows, she could easily buy another pair, for such a chance. Artful old party! But you're not afraid of your pater being caught by her elderly wiles, are you, Dulcie? After having been twenty years a widower, he's not very likely to marry again. Oh, no, answered Dulcie with a happy smile. I've no fear of that. I sent the ponies round to the stable, Auntie, for I thought perhaps you wouldn't mind having me to lunch. Mind having you? echoed Miss Blake, taking the girl in her arms and kissing her tenderly. My darling, your presence is like sunshine in the house. Mind having you, my pet? God grant that many of our future days may be spent together. This was said with deep feeling, with an unusual earnestness which impressed Dulcie. It was almost as if there was some foreboding of evil in Dora Blake's mind as she breathed this prayer. "'What does that horrid brother of mine mean by shutting himself up in his study all the morning?' exclaimed Tiny. "'He must have heard Dulcie's voice in the hall just now, unless love is deaf as well as blind. I'll go and unearth him.' "'Oh, please don't,' cried Dulcie. "'I came to see Aunt Dora and you. I see Morton at home, you know.' Oh, that's all very well, but he mustn't be inattentive. There goes the gong for luncheon. Auntie dear, you're looking ever so pale and fagged this morning. Have you and Tibbs been worrying over the house accounts? No, dear, I never worry about accounts. I know you're a model housekeeper, you sweet old auntie, liberal without wastefulness, indulgent but never lax, said Tiny. I'm afraid when I've a house, everything in it will run to seed in a dreadful way for want of being looked after. I so detest the details of domesticity. The three ladies found Morton in the hall, ready to escort Dulcie to the pretty, bright-looking dining-room, where the luncheon-table was all abloom with white and purple chrysanthemums, and where Horatia and Lizzie Hardman joined them at the social, unceremonious meal. 
Among so many there was plenty of conversation, but neither Dora Blake nor her nephew took an active part in it. The young ladies discussed their favourite subjects, novels, cruel work, conservatories, dress, and the floating gossip of the neighbourhood. There was a general light-heartedness which made up for Morton's silence and his aunt's abstracted manner. "'Now, dearest auntie, I want you to take me round the gardens and show me the hothouses,' said Dulcie coaxingly, putting her arm through Miss Blake's as they rose from the table. "'I have made up my mind for an afternoon's talk with you, and I shall only go home in time to give papa his tea.' "'Oh, there is nothing I should like better, my pet,' answered Dora. "'But this afternoon it is impossible. "'I have to drive to Highclere upon a matter of business. "'I must leave you to the three girls and Morton, "'who will be delighted to show you the houses, "'not that they contain anything very grand just now.' "'Business at Highclere, auntie,' said Tiny. "'What can that be?' I hope you're not going to visit that horrid man in the jail to hear him his catechism or teach him to sing a hymn. You're quite capable of it. No, dear, I am not going to the jail. For these and all thy mercies, murmured Tiny, as if she were saying grace. And then she wreathed her arm about Dulcie's waist and appropriated her for the rest of the afternoon allowing Morton to dance attendance upon them in and out of hothouses and greenhouses, and all over the spacious gardens. In Dulcie's company he managed to forget his perplexities, which had been increased by that unpleasant visit from Vargas's daughter. End of chapter 14